Why, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Peer Pressure Podcast. I am Diane, sometimes known as Diane Kamikaze, and I am your host. The reason why I do this podcast is because I like to say I am a champion of heavy music. I've always found my favorite songs since I was a young kid had riffs, hooks, were either metal, hardcore, hard rock, or punk, or something fairly aggressive in attitude and sound. And I am all about appreciating the people that keep that world going, whether they're musicians, webmasters, other podcasters, record label and festival owners. It's important to me to recognize what these people do in that realm of music. So I am here to bring them to you in a different context, more than a Wikipedia entry or a press release, a little more personal and a lot more fun. I'm a rocker for life, and I hope these episodes do make a difference. Send me feedback at diane at wfmu.org. And my Facebook page is Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life. Like my page there, and I will keep everybody updated on podcast episodes in that space. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned. Hey there. It is peer pressure. I am Diane Kamikaze. This is episode number 63. It is an encore presentation. Due to the recent passing of Mike Hudson, I thought that this would be a great show to revisit. It's a wonderful interview. Mike is smart and funny and really interesting. It comes from a the original appearance from March 15th, 2012. So he had a whole playlist. We talk about music also. I edited that a little bit, but what he has to say about the music is great. And Mike, we miss you for sure. And he contributed much more than just his music through the Pagans. He founded the Niagara Falls Reporter, which is a newspaper, and expressed himself fully, put himself out there. So, thought you'd like to hear this again. If you want to, I, I would really recommend that you check out the show in its entirety. You could go to the WFNU website and search Interview with Mike Hudson and that will come up and then you can hear the whole show with the music together. Um, and one other thing, he there's a moment where throughout the, the interview we talk about him being an author and the it comes up that he has five books out and he did write another book, Fame Horror, was not, was not written yet. And... So there you go. Zorro has quieted down on me. Let's see where Zorro is. <laughs> there we go. I didn't have him on loop. Damn him. And, uh, yeah, so that's all the info. Mike passed away October 27th, 2017. And we have those Pagans records. We have those vocals on the Styrene's records. And hopefully you go back and check out some of this stuff. Thank you for everything, Mike. Stay tuned. Mike Hudson, are you there? Hi, Diane. Hi! Ah, so, long time no see. Yes, indeed. Well, it hasn't been that long. But, um, so, Mike, uh, my guest, my, my esteemed guest today for the peer pressure segment of the program is Mike Hudson. And uh, we, Hi everybody. we just heard the Pagans somewhere in the middle of that set with Boy Can I Dance Good. And uh, if, you, if you could just establish uh, a little bit of, you know, this is kind of like the, the, the beginning part of To Tell the Truth, but, <laughs> but, but you can do it and give like the, the, little, the little bio. And uh, that way you can sort of uh, 
uh, focus on what you want to focus on? Well, um, you know, I was in the Pagans uh, a million years ago. Uh, uh, was with other bands after that. Uh, at the same time, uh, ran a career in the newspaper business and um, most recently been writing books. And you have a new book out, right? I do. Uh, it's pretty new. It came out in uh, November. It's a novel. It's called Never Trust the World. It's uh, kind of a noir, uh, violent, sexual, uh, underground novel. Nice. And people should buy it. Yes, people should buy it. And this is not your first book. No, I have five now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that fact. I don't know anybody who's written five books except for you. Well, that's 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 great. That's great. Uh, um, it just it was a logical thing to come out of the newspaper writing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then uh, people wanted uh, wanted me to write about music, so I did a, a memoir, diary of a punk that. Um, talks about the pagans and talks about those days and uh when you introduce yourself you said oh the pagans a million years ago is it weird for you to keep on talking about the pagans to people it's, it's not weird it's uh but it just seems like a really long time ago i mean it was a really long time ago it was 35 years ago yeah, uh, yeah. uh but it was uh a defining thing in me growing up and it was um I think you could talk to a lot of people who would say that that late 70s, early 80s uh, manifestation of rock and roll was like the last natural, organic thing that happened in rock and roll. I think that's why it still gets the attention it does. And, and do you find, though, that, that your memory or that you sort of retell the same, the same uh, facts and, and stories about that era? We, we were on tour... Uh, Cheetah Chrome, myself, Bob Pfeiffer from Human Switchboard, and uh, David Thomas from Perubu uh, last year around this time. And yeah, pretty much we told the same stories every place we went. Uh, people people asked the same questions. The, the funny thing about it was that wherever we were, like New York or uh, Seattle, San Francisco, uh, people knew stuff about Cleveland that was really surprising to us, like about local television personalities or uh, really obscure bands from the 60s or whatever it was. And, and I think that was the surprising part to us. Those people were big to us, but we had no idea that uh, anyone outside of Cleveland really was even cognizant of them. A lot of that may have been after the fact because Cleveland ended up being such an important focus for music at that time and, and on a historical level you go back and you do your homework. Yeah, yeah, there's been a lot written about it subsequently for sure because there wasn't at the time hardly anything written about it. That was one of the reasons I did Diary of a Punk. Well, I was going to ask you the, uh, the was it was it to sort of set a story straight or um, or to actually to get something out that you felt hadn't been out there? It, it was kind of, I was reading things like that uh, Clinton Highline's Elvis uh, to the Voidoids, and, and that was uh, probably had more about Cleveland in it than anything that had appeared before that. Mm -hmm. And there was just, you know, he's a younger guy. He's from... Uh, Great Britain. He talked to a very limited number of people, and um, to me, having been there, it conveyed pretty totally the wrong impression about what happened there. I had no idea that he was from the UK. Yeah, because I know the book, and and at the time, I thought it was timely, and had no idea. Yeah, I guess you see that in in music scenes now that you know. That, that a music scene past is now history and somebody writes about it, it's not always the person who's qualified to do so. Well, you know, and he had a, he had a definite agenda where he favored uh, oh. the talking heads. Cheetah uh, uh, Chrome always calls that book Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> and, you know, they're putting down Johnny Fonders, they're putting down some, some really important great people, and... Um, 
so not you know we didn't like it you decided to take the opportunity to write the diary of a punk then i had um gotten fired from a newspaper job and i was uh drinking myself to death and um some people suggested i should write about it just to uh to have you not drink yourself to death have me not drink myself to death yeah so (laughs) you know i started typing it we put it up first as a website and it started it got a a great deal of attention you know more than i thought it would and um so then it seemed logical to make it into a book so that is um and i'm looking at the the uh, your amazon page right now which is glorious and and uh, so diary of a punk that came out in 2008 is that right yeah your new one is never trust the world yeah so let me just jump to that one quickly this is a novel it's a novel and there's a few short stories tacked on at the end to make it a little longer it's uh pretty much everything i wrote uh fiction wise since i wrote the last one which was in 2009 the one before that was jetson and plus because of the tour I, I met a lot of uh great and important people on the tour like luke sant and um they were able to give me blurbs and so i didn't want to waste those blurbs and figured i had to get a new book out in order to uh use my new literary contacts well blurbs are certainly valuable in the world Mm -hmm. we are are Mm -hmm. in a world of blurbs you could you could tweet all those blurbs i had always thought that luke sant uh who wrote Low Life, of course, about New York City mm-hmm. uh, r- around the turn of the 20th century. Um, I always thought that he was the greatest writer of my generation, and uh, to uh, meet him and have him plug my book was, was quite an honor. You have a certain of that sort of hard-boiled, underbelly style as well. It, it's funny because we talked, and uh, we talked about that, uh, he's coming at it from a toy. He's Belgian, mm-hmm. and um, he's a college professor. And uh, whereas, um, you know, I'm kind of like a blue collar high school dropout. Okay. So we're coming at it from different places, but yeah, we're both attracted to the same things. And we had some good talks. He uh, moderated the two shows two readings we did in Manhattan and uh, Brooklyn last year. Are you in like a discipline mode when you're writing? Yeah, I do. I, um, it doesn't take me very long to write, but I, I'll i tend to like sleep all day and then stay up all night because the phone doesn't ring and, um, ah. you know, get up about 11 o'clock at night, go till 8 or 9 in the morning and and when I get in a, a groove like that, then it, it, it only, you know, I think that book took me like four weeks to write. Wow. At least the first draft of it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. substantially complete, as they say, in the construction industry. Oh, okay. <laughs> Mr. Accomplishment, I say, over here. <laughs> Sometimes you have to do it. I knew, uh, I wrote a book called Mob Boss. The newspaper that I run in Niagara Falls, New York, was going out of business and we needed money and i knew that book would make money and uh so again i sat down i, I turned that i did that in two and a half weeks it sold ten thousand copies right away and uh the newspaper was saved saved <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, much more creative than having a garage sale it's, it's sort of like having a garage sale actually mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so then, uh, Mob Boss, is, can you... Attend? That's a nonfiction book, and um, there was a guy, Stefano Magadino, he died in 74, and he was uh, a mafia uh, kingpin. He was uh, one of the seven original members of what they called the commission with, like, Lucky Luciano and uh, Joe Bonanno and Al Capone. There were the five families of New York, and then there was Buffalo and... Uh, Chicago, and of those seven guys, he was the only one who hadn't had a uh, biography written about him. He, um, I knew a lot of people who knew him from my work as a newspaper man up there, and so I, so I wrote a biography of him. So you didn't actually take newspaper articles and turn them into a book. It was it was just a book on its own. I had written quite a bit about him in the newspaper okay. over the years, and yeah, some of that I used in the book. 
he was he was a weird guy because he never got he was arrested only once in his life. He couldn't read or write. He never talked to a newspaper man. And so there's very little compared to those other guys, Luciano and those guys. There was very little documentary kind of uh, stuff to go to about him. You uh -huh. know, it had to be more you're talking to people who knew him or who worked for him or uh, whose families were somehow involved with him. It came out, uh, it was a funny thing, like the mafia guys in Buffalo, they took it as kind of a diss that there was no book about him. <laughs> so, it, so when I started writing it, they were uh, very eager to to contribute, you know. Wow. That's interesting. You don't rank in some way of notoriety unless they've written a book about you. That was it. They, they thought he was being disrespected, you know. And oh. uh, so they were, you, we'd sit down and have a drink or have a cup of coffee or whatever, and... Uh, they would tell these stories, and then it was just a matter of going to the uh, newspaper archives, because obviously the dates get fuzzy when old people start talking about what happened 40 years ago. Right, sure. And uh, finding stories that jived with the anecdotes that these people had told me and um, putting, a, you know, putting a timeline on it. Mm -hmm. That was probably very difficult, and I'm sure it was entertaining. It's the biggest book. It, it, it sold the most of all my books. There's guys that, like, follow the mob, like, you know, the Civil War reenactors and stuff like that, you oh. know, and just anything about the Civil War they're crazy for. There's people that follow the mob like that. Nice. And uh, will buy any anything that has to do with the mob. So it, it sold well initially, and then uh, it, it's continued uh, selling well over the years. That's great. The mob's been very, very good to me, Diane. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just, you know, you just got to watch your step and make sure that, that you're still very, very good to them. <laughs> yeah. that's well, that's why I cut the book off at 1974. Okay. Uh, when, when, when Stefano died, because I didn't want to uh, embarrass anyone. Well, yeah, you don't want to... Uh, you don't... There's no mafia anymore. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> um, we have a, a question, I, and I, I don't, it just says, ask Mike about the couch in Minneapolis. About what in Minneapolis? The couch. A couch in Minneapolis. And there is. <laughs> All right. I feel, I feel like Johnny Carson, remember when he put on the. Um, oh, the great, what did he say? The turban and would hold the envelopes. Next yeah, to what did he call um, that? Oh. Okay, you know, I just, you know, I th I wasn't sure. I can't give you any more. Is that more. from somebody I know? Um, I don't know. Do you have a hint? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think so. It's from a regular listener here. Um, we, used to, we used to play Minneapolis a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, we were on um, Treehouse Records, which was based there um, the mid-late 80s, and... Uh, so our tours always started in Minneapolis, and uh, we were up there quite a bit. Any uh, particular uh, stories from Minneapolis that you can think of? One time, Tim Alley, our bass player, knocked uh, Evan Dando for Minneapolis unconscious. Um, <laughs> we've gone to see them, and they ask us to play like uh, a couple of songs at their show, so we did. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were all sitting at a at a booth, and Tim got up and went to get drinks for everybody. And um, when he returned, Evan Dando was sitting in uh, his spot in the booth, and Tim was standing there with like these two handfuls of drinks. Evan was paying no attention to him, and um, so Tim put the drinks down and grabbed him by the shoulders and getting the bums rush out of the booth and there was like a pillar there oh. and oh. he ran his head into the pillar and um, Evan <laughs> lost consciousness briefly and, um, and Tim sat down and we had a drink. Nice. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, um, I'd like to break here. You are here as my guest DJ and uh, we'll get back to and we'll get some clarification on the couch. Um, yeah, yeah, clarification on that couch. Yes. So we are back with Mike Hudson. Are you there, sir? 
Hey, Diane. Hello. So, uh, nice having little... coffee. You're having coffee? I know. You're, yeah. you're on the West Coast now, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I came out here like uh, end of, December, end of uh, November. And uh, and you stayed, and you're so so. I want to thank you just for getting on the phone at 10 a.m., especially since you talked about your <laughs> writing habits and staying up all night writing. You know. I, still, I still kind of stay on East Coast time, so but, you know I still have business back there. So uh, oh, uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's the morning here. You're such a Renaissance man. <laughs> well, I bet that coffee's tasting pretty good. But thanks for it, it, it is good. Yeah, it is good. awesome. I so, always hated LA, you know. Um, my brother died out there and uh, out here, and um, since then I was only out here one time before last year for my nephew's bar mitzvah. And um, last year we were out here for two weeks. We played. We did the readings here, and I started liking it. I came back in July. I, I had some stuff with Bob Pfeiffer from Human Switchboard. Then there's a band from from Detroit called The Dogs, a punk rock band, and they did a cover of Her Name Was Jane, which is an old pagan song. And um, they asked me to come out and be in a video and play it with them at the Redwood downtown. My co-star in the video, Avita Corby, she uh, she's beautiful, and I fell in love with her. And... Um, I had to come back out here for good. Well, that's some pretty good news. It, it was, it was, you know, it was unexpected. It was, uh, you think your life's going one way, and then all of a sudden it goes another way. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't plan things like that, can you? Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's super. The Cramps were from Cleveland. Okay. Um, actually, Stowe, which is a suburb from Cleveland, uh, uh, Lux had been a, a school teacher. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. And um, he met Ivy. I'm not sure how he met Ivy, but they fell in love and uh, went to New York and uh, did those first singles. Um, they were, we played a lot of shows with them in the 70s. And uh, I remember Ivy saying to me once, um, we're sitting in the dressing room, and they were all, they were all really spooky and stuff. And uh, <laughs> she said, she said, we're not musicians. None of us. We're actors. Nice. And she lived like that. They lived like that. Like, you know what? You, you go down to the store and you get a pack of cigarettes and you're wearing your pajamas or whatever. But um, they would get get up like before they would leave the house, no matter where they were going. You know, it was. It was sad when Lux died. Oh, yeah, for sure. Do you have any idea what he taught when he was a teacher? You know, I don't. <laughs> I don't. just can't imagine him being your teacher. Whoa. I know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> have you seen the videos of them playing the mental institution? I have. Here? Yes, yes. Those it's are so amazing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I would guess that he would be a really good teacher in some ways if people could. He, he, could, he, he was incredibly could. entertaining. Yeah, and he commanded attention. Yeah, yeah, you knew <laughs> when he was in the room. Right, he'd go go on and on about history. I see him jumping up on a desk, you know, talking about the Mesopotamia or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, what a loss for sure. Um, they, they went to New York and then they they ended up coming out here and. Um, in a lot of ways, to me, they were the most successful group that came out of Cleveland, like uh, around that time, because uh, you know they were together until, until he died. Yeah, is that success to never retire? Mike and I were talking about what's retired. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like retired guys, from doing the same. Those guys stuff. toured a lot, though. I never, yeah. you know, I never liked to tour, even when we were touring. You know. It's a hard way to live, especially if you uh, are having any kind of substance abuse uh, issues. That's why I think that's why you see a lot of the, a lot of the guys go and 55, 60 years old. You know, I mean, right at the same time, Lux died. Ronnie Ashton died. Um, oh yeah. He was he was another one that was on the road all the time. But I don't think it's a good way to live. 
Well, you certainly have to be very intentional about getting what you need on the road in terms of eating well and sleeping well and all that. I mean, you've got to take care of well, the body. Of the time you, most of the time you just don't. Right. You know, especially, yeah. especially if you're bombing around the country in a van or uh, right, you do doing it, it like that, you know. Yeah. I see, I see some of the guys, you know, I see, not as a put down, but well, I'm not going to say anybody's name, but you see guys that are like my age and and they're just, they're doing that, you know, and you go, why are you doing that? You know, what's, don't, yeah. you, don't you just have a house and a, <laughs> and a girlfriend and uh, I, I never thought there was any glamour in it. I, mm-hmm. I always liked making records, mm-hmm. but uh, I never thought there was any glamour in touring. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways you're right. I mean, unless you're a large band with a, you know, a bus and hotel rooms and all that. There's... I guess to be the Rolling Stones, for sure, you know? Yeah. You go, you fly <laughs> to each gig, you know? Yeah. So let's rewind the clock. The Pagans have their own jet. So if the Pagans had their own jet, what would the symbol on the tail of the jet be? <laughs> it would just be that stenciled Pagans, like from the front cover of the singles. But, okay. you know, if, if we had any kind of success like that, then instead of two dead members, we would have five dead members. You know what I mean? It was uh, it was pretty dicey as it was, and and a lot of times now I'm thankful for uh, that nobody paid any attention to us when we were actually around. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, well, you you get those adoring fans that'll give you anything, and the the mountain of cocaine doesn't end, and and you're. Do you know what? I hadn't done cocaine in 25 years. I'm going to tell you. Mm-hmm. When I was in Portland, Oregon, this last year on the tour. A couple of shows on the tour, like uh, New York City and Portland, and um, we, pl- we played music. We were in Portland, Oregon, and I played music, and I was drinking then. I was just feeling really good, and we were in this little club, and some guy walks up, and he's got a quarter of an ounce of Coke, and he goes, do you want to go do some Coke? And I was, I hadn't done it in 25 years, and just like, it was like an automatic response. I just said, yeah. You know, the, the next day I'm going, what did you do? What, what is wrong with you, you know? <laughs> but, it, but it was just being there, you know? 25 years later. Yeah, exactly. Like, what's wrong with you? And we all have automatic responses to certain things. You know, yeah. whether, whether it's like a response that's automatic from a member of our family, like, uh, you know, like, you know what they're going to say. Somebody offers you something to indulge in. We, we used to get paid in cocaine. Oh, <laughs> really? You know, we, we, would come, we would come on, you know, in the dressing room, uh, uh, break the wall length mirror to have something to do it off of. And uh, we used to get paid like that, you know. Wow. So, ju- so you just said that as an example, like we'd break the mirror just to do cocaine off of. How destructive would you say that you were as a band? Um, what were your shows like? In the 70s, it could, it could, because all of us were, were heavy drinkers. All of us were using a lot of drugs, um, and that includes our manager. Um, so it was pretty out of control all the time. We would fight a lot among ourselves. Um, some shows would just be amazingly good. Everything would go okay, and uh, everybody would be, whatever reason. But other shows would just be disasters and wind up uh, fist fight on stage and uh, <laughs> short and set. That's the legendary stuff, though. That's the legendary stuff. That's the legendary stuff, you know? But I can tell you that, like, when you're driving back, to Cleveland from Chicago with three broken ribs. Oh. You know, it doesn't feel too legendary because you can't hardly get your arm up high enough to hold the steering wheel. Oh. Uh, you know, you got to pay your dues if you're going to Yeah. If you're, if you're going to play that way, that's what you got to that's what you got to do. Oh. But that that leads me then back. There was some uh, there was some clarification on the the uh, the couch question. So the person said somebody threw a couch off a balcony. Oh, that was in Cleveland. That wasn't in Minneapolis. We played this show. It was that was one of the shows that we got paid in cocaine for. <laughs> it was like the night before New Year's Eve in 1978, and um, we rented this big auditorium, the WHK auditorium in Cleveland, and there was like 10 bands on the bill, and 
we were headlining and it just everything got out of control and we got out of control and the audience got out of control and it was this you know this old palace type theater and um there was this art deco couch up in the balcony and i see that coming down towards the stage and people were just winging bottles at us the stage got so slippery that I couldn't really move around without falling down. And you would fall down, and there was like a bed of broken glass from the bottles oh. on the stage. Oh. So I'm covered, you know, I got blood running down my arms and my chest and my head. And um, that was an abbreviated set as well. That was an abbreviated <laughs> set as well. We went out like, we were supposed to go out at midnight. I think we went out like three in the morning and, uh, it was dangerous. You know, it was actually dangerous. How much of that of that experience was really um, expected at that time, or were there a lot of gigs that you would go to that were just sort of mellow shows? It, you know, like us, I, I can only speak for us and a little bit for the Dead Boys because they were were and you know, she is still a great friend of mine, uh, Jimmy. For us, we were like, prior to being in the bands, we were like uh, stealing cars, and um, we were like blue-collar kids, lower middle class. Um, uh, none of us finished high school. And music was kind of a way to get away from that, but by the same token, we brought a lot of that with us. You know what I mean? Mm, I the fighting it. and the, the vandalism and... Uh, and all that. So I don't know that it was expected or, I mean, we were just being us, you know? Right. But so do you see that your trajectory would have been really that different had you not been playing music? Oh, I think we have all been, you know, wound up doing jail time and uh, <laughs> maybe ended up working in a factory. Uh, what we were supposed to do. No, it, music for sure took us out of that and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, took us into a different world. Well, thank goodness for that, because you're... <laughs> well, really, it's like you're the world without having an amazing lyricist like you, it's like, oh my God, come on, you know. I'm a lucky guy. Yeah. I've always been a lucky guy. Uh, apparently, when the couch was thrown, it missed you, even though you were bleeding. <laughs> and... Uh, Wow. The couch missed us. Uh, we, we got out of there okay, and 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 you know we broke up in '79 the first time, and um, we thought that was it. You know, we thought that we thought that part of our lives was over then, and uh, but it wasn't. You know, because you never know what's going to happen next. What's your worst um, on-stage injury? The worst on-stage injury actually happened to Tim, and it wasn't on stage. Tim Ali, our bass player, it wasn't actually on stage, but it was in the dressing room, and we were playing in Hoboken, New Jersey. Oh, no. And um, at, at Maxwell's. And, um, again, there was much uh, drugs and alcohol involved, and he took a head or he fell. There was a drum stand, or like a, a cymbal stand, that was retracted, so it was like something like three feet off the ground. And he fell on that. He like sat down hard on that, not knowing where he was sitting down. And it went right up uh, his rectum. No, I know the FCC is listening. And, Are you um, kidding? It perforated some stuff inside him. Oh. <laughs> and. Uh, he was bleeding. He had uh, he was stuffing toilet paper up there, uh, oh my like God, a woman a... would use a tampon. Oh. And um, was this? We went on. We played the show. It went really well. <laughs> and uh, and then after the show, we went back to the hotel. We had stolen because we had gotten to the club early, so. We filled all our bags with like bottles of vodka because they stupidly let us into the club when no one was there. Oh, right. Okay. So we we, we probably had a case of vodka with us, and uh, Jim was just pounding, pounding because he was in such pain and uh, bleeding so badly. 
and but we had to play Boston the next afternoon in order to get the plane tickets back home to Cleveland. Mm. And um, so fortunately it was an early show, an all-ages show, and we played that in the Lemonheads again. That was the first. That was the <laughs> Lemonheads' first gig. Oh no! They opened. They opened for us at, at a club in Cambridge there, mm-hmm. and um, and we got home. And Tim, uh, an ambulance met us at the airport, and uh, Tim went right into intensive care. And uh, you know, truthfully, we didn't know if he was going to make it or not. Ugh. I mean, that's a serious injury. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's frightening, and wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, completely speechless, you know. Yeah, it's all fun and games until somebody gets a uh, uh-huh. a, a symbol stand shoved up their rectum. Yeah, right, exactly. That's rock and roll. Patty Smith was great. You know, we played with her a couple of times. The success that she's had uh, subsequently, and um, especially with the book, and winning the National Book Award. The two of you really have a lot in common, just doing music and, and journalism. She's the greatest, and you know, living all those years in uh, in Michigan with Fred, and because uh, Michigan's really exactly like Ohio. The weather's the same. The lake is the same. You know, she's a real person, and she uh, and Lenny as well. It's been cool to see her success, see her recognized for you know the artist that she is. Yeah, it's like one one of your own. You know, mm-hmm. I think Horses. You know, it, it was probably uh, the best album of of that era. You know, and the Ramones. You know, it, completely different changed everything you know uh, New York was so happening then certain bands from Cleveland did relocate to New York had you ever had that conversation I mean I know that you did at some point but it was after the fact we always we were so stupid that we always thought we could make it out of Cleveland <laughs> you know we were the dead boys like Stiv was a little bit older than us and um he kind of had a better business sense than we did in those days. And um, so Dead Boys went to New York. They got signed. We kind of thought that um, on an independent Cleveland-based level that we could uh, we could do that same thing, reach that same kind of thing. And, um, you know, it totally didn't work out. But... We were kids, and we were like the hell with New York, you know. We didn't like New York. We didn't like Los Angeles. We didn't like, you know, we liked Detroit. All right. I'm not sure if that's a would be would have been a step up or not. <laughs> kind of a lateral move. Right. We used to we used to play up there all the time. Uh, Destroy all monsters. Mike Davis mm. just died too. Yeah. But the monsters were great. We played with them all the time, and uh, it was a, it was a weird thing. What the uh, the gigs? You mean just the whole Cleveland thing? You know, in, at that time, I mean, we all wanted to just get out, destroy it, everything else. But you know, now you look back at it and you still hate it. You know? As a scene, I'm going to guess that once it starts, it still kind of keeps on percolating, whether you're there or not. Yeah. Know? And, and you would still be doing the same thing, and you have been doing the same thing relatively, no matter where you've gone. You know, I write and I, I write and I play music. You know, that's, that's all I know how to do. My mom says, uh, uh, "Too lazy to work, too nervous to steal." <laughs> Hi, mom. Shout out to Clark Range, Tennessee. Nice. Pete Lawner was our. Uh, uh, he was like our martyr, you know. Mm. He died in uh, like uh, summer of '77, right when everything was just starting to break. Right. And he, um, you know, well known as a writer, wrote for Cream, wrote for the Plain Dealer, which is the big paper in Cleveland. Um, uh, plus, just was an incredible songwriter, you know. Uh, and he's the one that. It got short shrifted most of all just because he was so stupid and uh, 
did way too much drugs, you know? Mm. You ever read the thing Lester Bangs wrote about him? Um, not recently. It should be required reading in every high school English class, I think, because it goes right to the heart of killing yourself isn't really a romantic thing to do, despite generations of artists who did it. Well, and a lot of, I mean, a lot of the, quote, killing yourself, especially in an artistic point of view, is is not, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the slow death thing, and people always say, ah, that stuff will kill you, but nobody really sees evidence of that, you know. There's, there's that. Uh, you know, um, I was amazed when Mike uh, Davis died a couple of weeks ago that he was 69 years old. I mean, that makes him... Uh, of all those guys I knew then who are dead now, one of the most long-lived. Mm -hmm. um, uh, most of them are around 60 or even younger than that, Jimmy Carroll. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's like you don't shoot yourself in the head with a pistol, but uh, you keep living lifestyle choices that, uh, uh, you know, cut in uh, a great deal. Yeah, that will diminish your 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 grand total at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to know, really, what was that like? I mean, that era, to me, that was just sort of like an enviable place to be, and what was going on, and and uh, there were a lot of bands in that midwestern zone. I mean, did you see the Stooges, like, all the time in the MC5? You know, like, like really, what was it like living there? I know, I know you talked about being working class and, you know, dropping out of school and stuff, but just in terms of the music scene. and We, we saw them a lot, and, uh, you know, in the case of, you know, like Ronnie, uh, we toured with uh, when he was with the Monsters, Mike Davis. I guess now I'm related to uh, uh, James Williamson by marriage or something. Um, oh. Talking to the guys who were around then, I know Scotty from out here. Um, all the guys from the Midwest, they're like, we just did this for our own entertainment. You know what I mean? There was nothing to do. There wasn't like clubs where you could go see cool stuff all the time. There wasn't like a scene. And so it started out just doing it. You would do it in your basement or your garage or whatever, and uh, mostly just for your own amusement to to stave off the boredom, you know. And um, and and then it developed from there. But it was never really like a full blown uh, kind of thing like you had subsequently. So what were the bills like in general? Like who you know? Like did you play with the same? The Dead Boys and all those we bands. The Dead Boys a lot, um, but it was really eclectic. It was uh, like now you go see a hardcore band, and it's all hardcore bands opening up, you know. Mm -hmm. But there were bills that we played a bill. Uh, it was the Nerves from out here who wrote "Hanging on the Telephone," and they were great. Um, but like a power pop thing, they were headlining. I think. Uh, we were on the bill. Devo was on the bill, and Perubu. Okay, that was like that was like one show. Yeah, that's that's a great lineup. So like every band that came out was just coming from a totally different place. There wasn't any fashion like there is now. You know, well, you guys, um, you were inventing this stuff. <laughs> you, know. you know, yeah, you would you would pretty much wear what you wore on the street to the to the show. You know what I mean? Uh, I have to ask, because I am a ridiculous fan, what was Devo like for, like, their early shows? Were they just, like, the the slide rule kids who just had a band? And you still probably... They were. Yeah. They absolutely were. That's the, people were to the... You know, the whole style thing was, like, sort of how they were in, like, their real life. Devo was funny because we played with them three or four times in Cleveland, and then all of a sudden we had a gig with them, and... It, they just didn't show up. Yeah, like Unlikely. two days later, we read that they had been signed by Warner Brothers for some crazy millions of dollars and um, wow. had gone out to L.A. And uh, so it was like they just disappeared. It was like they were struck by lightning or something, you know? <laughs> and uh, and, and that, that's, that's how it was, you know? That two, uh, two weeks after that, then they were on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> 
Wow. Oh, that's crazy. But so, 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 you know, you're telling me about these, these gigs and stuff. It's like, like, I can see you, you know, hanging out with the Perubu guys and the, then the nerves, like was hanging out with Devo, like as odd as being thrown into like advanced placement class, kind of. <laughs> they were, they were cool guys. They were cool guys. Oh, good. They, uh, uh, their best friends were the Rubber City Rebels, uh, oh, awesome. who were a punk band from Akron and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, you know, when you were from Cleveland, like Cleveland, uh, un- unlike New York or Los Angeles, or, you know, it was, there were only, you could only be so much different from the middle, you know what I mean? Right. So everybody could talk about um, how bad the Cleveland Indians were that year, or okay. Uh, well, there was something to relate you all together. Yeah, yeah, we were stuck in Cleveland, <laughs> and the scene was so small. I mean, including all the guys in the bands, it was never more than you know. I, I, I even hesitate to say a couple of hundred people. You know, mm-hmm. so everybody knew everybody, and like that. You know, the bands would come into town, they'd stay at your house. You'd go to their town and stay at their house. It was it was really uh, basic. So it's, but legendary in its own way. And, and it had to have been a very pure time. There, like you said, like you go to a hardcore show now and everybody's on the bill doing the same thing. And I guess it just had to have been a really creative period. If you were touring in 1978, you would show up at a club, you know, whether it was in Chicago or wherever it was, and um, you walk in and there's like a lighted disco dance ball hanging from the ceiling, and uh, mm-hmm. all these kids are, are dressed like uh, John Travolta, and uh, <laughs> we didn't even, they didn't know what we were, we didn't know what they were. Um, right. And so, you know, the reactions were often uh, not good, you know, or it wasn't what they expected, it wasn't what we expected, you know? Mm-hmm. And then when you moved or have lived in other areas, I mean, and you saw actual, quote, music scenes, did you form an opinion about if it seemed clickish or what the differences were to kind of just, I mean, it just sounds like Cleveland was like scratching and clawing your way to just get gigs and to kind of hang with your friends. It, it, it was like that, and but yeah, when we uh, my brother moved to New York fairly early, he had lived there in '77 uh, briefly, and he moved for good in '79. He played there a few times towards the end, and everybody there was really cool to us. Um, uh, so it didn't seem clickish. It seemed like why didn't we just come here before? You know? Oh, okay. Brian had a problem with his drums when we played Nexus, Kansas City, and uh, Jerry Nolan has his drums brought over wow. so that Brian would have drums, you know. Nice. Yeah. So it was cool. At that time, you know, the only places that had actual scenes like that were uh, New York and Los Angeles yeah, and, and London, cities. England. You yeah. Know? You know, but it's funny because it's like, you know, I mean, in hindsight, I'm sure there was probably not a moment where you thought, yeah, there's going to be a book written about this. No, I was always pretty confident. I was always pretty confident. I always thought, uh, uh, you know, if Anais Nin and Henry Miller could get movies made about them, then pretty much anybody could. <laughs> Very good. That's why we like you, Mike, because you're an optimist. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, somebody wants to know if you have any Tin Huey stories. Tin Huey, it's a fu- it's a funny story, and I, I don't know if Ralph and the boys uh, would agree with this story, but my recollection is that um, there was it, we were playing a show, and they were on the bill, and it was at uh, the Pirates Cove, and our manager had arranged for a record company guy from Warner Brothers to come and see us, and it was supposed to be like a big deal. We were going to get signed and stuff like that. So the guy comes. We had a bad night. 
it was one of those, you know, I told you it was 50-50, like whether we were going to be out drunk and fighting or right. whether we pull it off. And um, it was one of the drunken fighting nights, and she knew he played, and they got signed to Warner Brothers. Oh, ow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I, I know those guys subsequently uh, better than I knew them then, and... Uh, uh, you know, they're good guys. They deserve everything they got. Mm-hmm. And, and what would have happened to, to you guys if you signed to Warner Brothers? We'd all be dead. Right. Yeah, you said that <laughs> before. Be, right. Unquestionably. Right. Be like, oh, we got an advance. Yeah. Was that you couldn't put anything in those days. Seriously, you couldn't put anything in a syringe or uh, in a powder form that could be inhaled or a liquid that could be drank, or something that could be smoked that we wouldn't do if you just handed it to us. So if we'd have had some crazy money, you know, not had to work, uh, there's no doubt in my mind it wouldn't have worked out well. And you sound like you're doing pretty well now. Um, Mike Hudson is the author of five books. The newest one <clears throat> is called uh, Never Trust the World. It's uh, your first novel. And, uh, it is. Yeah. That's, uh, and I guess from writing lyrics and, uh, and doing investigative reporting, what's the, uh, what's the difference? When, when you're writing, the cool thing about being in a band is that you go in there and you have your idea, and if you've picked your mates properly, they just add to it, you know what I mean? Um, the guitar player comes up with something that you wouldn't have even thought of, or the drummer puts a stop in, or um, but it's like a collaborative process, uh, which is why I never understand. You know, like even the Rolling Stones. I mean, they put every song Jagger Richards. I mean, I'm sure Keith and Nick didn't write Charlie's drum parts. Right. Right. I'm sure Charlie came up with those on his own, you know. So to me, he should get a writing credit, too. Sure. You know, that with the Pagans, we always just, the writing credits were always just the Pagans. Mm-hmm. But when you write, write, especially when you write fiction, when you're, when you're doing work of imagination, then it's, you're just by yourself, you know. It's, uh, it's just in your head, and you, you have the machine in front of you, and... Um, it's just what comes out, you know, a one-man band. Right. So when you're doing things like on a case, let's say, because you've been a newspaper writer for a long time, yeah. is, is that more of like a manipulation or, or sort of taking facts and then trying to make something cohesive? I mean, what's that experience like? You try and find out what the, what the truth is mm-hmm. any, in any given situation. And to do that, you have to do a lot of uh, just basic kind of research, but then also talk to lots of people. And um, it helps to be, you know, somewhat gregarious. And uh, like doing, the, like you're doing this interview. You know what I mean? It's it's that, and, and you have a tape recorder going, and you're taking notes. Uh, when you get done with all that, then you have a pile of stuff and then figuring out what was important, what was um, uh, truth and what might have been somebody trying to advance their own agenda. Um, mm. Yeah, everybody has their own truth. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Very cool. And, and uh, you are a master at your craft on, on either end. That's... You say the nicest things, Diane. <laughs> That's why you said yes to coming on the show. <laughs> Now, you know, somebody asked, they wanted to know Jane Scott. Um, right. And uh, there was a... Jane re- was great. Yeah, she just passed away last year, I think. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people, no matter what town we went to on the tour last year, uh, people w- wanted to hear Jane Scott stories. So can you tell us a Jane Scott story? She was kind of like your daddy old aunt, um... Even when I first met her, which was in the mid-70s, she was old then, you know? I mean, she was in her 50s at least, and uh, she was she was 90-something last, last year when she passed away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and she'd come to these shows, and she would wear earplugs, and um, 
she would take your picture, and she would always ask what high school you went to. Oh, that's cute. And that would always be like a thing in her article, you know, uh, what high school you went to. And mm. um, But she just uh, promoted the hell out of the weirdest kinds of music. And uh, a lot of people give Cleveland credit for you know, breaking people like Bruce Springsteen or Patti Smith or, uh, and it, it really had a lot to do with, with Jane and, and, and what she wrote. Hmm. And um, in the pantheon of, of, of rock journalists, I think almost any guy from Cleveland would uh, put her very near the top. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the, those kinds of praises for her over and over yeah. again. Yeah, obviously very, uh, very important for that scene. I, I, we were playing one night, and you know the pagans were loud. I mean, we were all, all about Marshall, you know, stacks, and uh, um, and I noticed her sleeping <laughs> out she, in the audience. She had a table, and she was she was not now. Oh, I guess she, uh, but she wanted to support. That's really awesome. Well, she did, she did. She would write every week. And I mean, you know, here's a woman who interviewed the Beatles on their first tour, knew Elvis. Uh, uh, wow. You know, so she was like a link to all that. And you were just some kid from uh, the east side. And, and then now she's talking to you. So, you know, she was great. You said the east side. And I know that there, um, I've read about it. And there was a question about, I guess, the fire on the um, the river that I guess sort of separated the the sides of the city, the Cuyahoga, yeah, the uh, the river goes right down the middle of downtown, and there's the east side and the west side, and there's very culturally and everything else big differences between the east side and the west side. But um, in about '75, I think it uh, it was so polluted; it was the most polluted river in the United States. And uh, it just burst into flames spontaneously. They said it was because um, a train had gone over uh, a bridge, and the sparks from the, where the wheels are on the tracks oh. uh, dropped down onto the surface of the water, which was thick with um, oil and paint. And uh, wow! Wow! And it just burst into flames, and it burnt down a couple of bridges. That's crazy. And uh, so that was, you know, that was the other thing about being from Cleveland, you know. It was like the Indians every year were in last place. A river caught on fire. It was front-page news. You know, we had blizzards every winter that just shut the city down. Um, uh, Johnny Carson, when on the Johnny Carson show, he used to... Uh, he had these contests, and the and the uh, if you lost the contest, your prize was a vacation to Cleveland. Um, so it was kind of like a <laughs> national joke, you know. Right. We, the mayor of the the mayor of the town before Dennis Kucinich, he uh, he had so much hairspray in his hair. One day he went to a like a, an industrial site to do a photo op and. Uh, they were welding, and a spark from the welding went in his hair, and he had so much hairspray in that his, 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 his head just burst into flames. <laughs> um, his wife, Mrs. Perk, she was invited to uh, by Betty Ford to the White House. Uh, like They were having a dinner for all the Republican uh, big city mayor's wives. She said she couldn't go because it was her bowling night. Wow. So that made national news. You know, it was just yep. story after story like that, that oh, in funny. the national press, you know. And so Cleveland was like, it was like a joke. At that. Yeah, I guess it still is. But That's funny. <laughs> Sorry, can't come out to the White House. <laughs> Anything new that you listen to? Um... No. Okay. okay. I don't even have anything in my house other than the computers, and I can play YouTube, but I don't have speakers on my computers, so mm -hmm. 
Uh, other than that, I don't even have anything in my house to play music on. Okay. I had to ask, and I had the feeling that you probably were not. I know, I know everybody yeah. asked. Uh, yeah, know, no, and that, that is one of the questions from the listeners, like, what do you listen to now? And Obviously, I have a CD player in my car, and, and I listen to stuff I always listen to, uh, you know, Rolling Stones and uh, uh, Frank Sinatra and Elvis, and pretty much the stuff I always listen to. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, so the last time I saw you, you were doing your book tour with uh, with Cheetah. Any book tours planned? I've got, uh, there's, there's no tour planned. I'm doing a, um, a spoken word record with this uh, group. They're on a Belgian label, Neuropa. They're called uh, Roses Never Fade. Mm-hmm. And they sent me some tracks, and I dug them, and so I'm writing some stuff now to... Uh, to do over it. I'm going to record that out here. I'm working on a new novel and I'm uh, writing a book about Japanese swords. Really? Mm-hmm. Are you a collector? I am. Wow. I am. I don't know anything about Japanese swords, but I'll have to talk to you about that because I do collect certain blades myself. Somebody wants to know, why are the dead boys not held in the same regard as the Stooges? I don't know if you can answer that. Um, I think it's kind of because the the Stooges were, you know, obviously first. I mean, they way predated. It's like the Velvet Underground, right? Mm-hmm. The Dead Boys, I don't think, ever got the respect uh, that they should have. And I think it was largely due to bad management, bad PR when they were when they were actually around. Um, in a certain in a certain sense, like the Pagans, uh, people focused on the drugs they were doing, nonsense they were involved in, rather than uh, listening to the records. Because those records absolutely hold up. Oh, for sure. What's your thought on the the impact that the Pagans made? You guys were a band for sort of a short period of time, but the impact was larger. Is there, were you surprised that, um, at how that sort of turned out? Again, I wasn't surprised. I always knew we were great, but I hate it when, um, you know, kids are are, are drinking and doing drugs and stuff like that and say it's because uh, they dug the pagans so much. Um, Like, I'm not responsible for what kids choose to do in their lives, and uh, I don't like getting blamed for it, so... Well, that's um, that would be a pretty lame excuse. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the guy in the pagans do You it. always look for any excuse, though, when you're doing that stuff. You know, it's uh, oh well, it's never uh, your it's never your fault. It, you know? it's never uh, your fault. Yeah, it's never your choice. Oh, I did it because somebody else had me do it. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. You know, and that, so um, it, it, it has good parts and it has bad parts. You know, I had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I, we had a lot of. fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a good time in my life, and uh, it's brought me good things over the years, and uh, I'm glad I did it. Awesome. Well, we're all glad you did it, too. Were, th- were there any um, musicians in the scene that you think were really overlooked? And, of course, overlooked is a weird word because Cleveland, in I mean, the scene has right. now had some attention. So in in light of all that, of that attention... Is there anything that, that, that the historians have missed? There, there was one guy, his name was Bernie Jolson, and he had a band called Bernie and the Invisibles. And he was very uh, Jonathan Richmond, and he was great. We, uh, he was just great, but he was a neurotic kid. He never, he did some recordings, but I don't, they've never been released. I put out a couple of live tracks by him when I was running Terminal Records, but him, because he was as good as anybody who was around. Cool. Yeah, I, I certainly don't know the name. And, you know, we didn't even touch on, we're just about out of time, we didn't even touch on your whole DIY, like you were talking about sort of putting together a book to put out and all that, but you you did a lot of uh, publishing and music and in um, in the uh, of the written word. Um yeah. Well, there was hardly anything else to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love your down pat answers, you know. Just kind of like. So Mike Hudson has a page on Amazon and uh, has five books that are out. There's uh, the latest one is Never Trust the World. 
the uh, the most uh, music oriented one is Diary of a Punk. Then there's Mob Boss, Niagara, Niagara Falls Confidential, and Jetsam. And um, very good. I would I would certainly recommend all of them. Um, is there anywhere else that people can find you? Um, that you uh, want to be I found? Hope, I hope not. Okay. Well, is there anything else that you want listeners to know? Um, that uh, whenever I'm in New York City, I listen to WFMU <laughs> 91.1 on my FM dial. Diane Kamikaze Ferris rules the FN world. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Oh, that's funny. Mike, I just, I really want to thank you. I just want to thank you for making the time to do this. And I know you're on the West Coast, so 10 a.m. was, was certainly a, would be a tall order for me. And, uh, and just for your contribution, you know, just in, in terms of the bands that you were in and your writing. And Mike's writing is really, really unbelievable and, and, and uh, just so in your face, like, like, like real visceral and, and uh, super. Thanks for keeping all of us thinking and keeping yourself motivated to do that so that, so that we get to read, you know, real books. Like in this world of like where you press a button and something comes up to entertain you, it's really great to read like real good books um, from somebody who's so accomplished. Thanks a lot, Diane. I really appreciate it. You know that. And, uh, I do. I'll, and thanks for coming on the show. Talk to you in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> And that concludes another podcast version of Peer Pressure, a segment of Diane's Kamikaze Fun Machine. Thanks to Mike Hudson for appearing on the original show and for everything. Have a great week, folks. I am Diane Kamikaze. Check my Twitter and my Instagram. Handle is one word, Diane Kamikaze. Kamikaze ends with an E. On Facebook, you can find me as Diane Kamikaze, Farris, rocker for life and making a difference. Yes, my Facebook page has 10 words in it. My regular show is on Thursdays from noon to 3 p.m., for an expanded version with lots and lots of music, wisecracks, and fun stuff. The full link to my uh, index of shows and podcasts is can be found on wfmu.org slash playlists slash DK. Those are, that's a capital D and a capital K. I'm going to be working on encore presentations, and I've got years of old interviews and podcasts. So if there's something that you'd like to see reposted that you missed, Please get in touch. Send me email, diane at wfmu.org. And be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like it, please rate it and review it. Wow. WFMU. Peer pressure. Thank you. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>